0: Our podcast is brought to you by Northrop Grumman. Northrop Grumman applies electromagnetic maneuver warfare to seamlessly target and combat enemy threats across any domain. By leveraging traditional spectrum-based and next-generation innovations, they're giving your forces a decisive advantage. That's why they're a leader in transformative airborne EW. To learn more, visit northropgrumman.com EW. Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Marketing and Outreach. Joining me is my co-host, Proceedings Editor-in-Chief Bill Hamlet. Bill, here we are, Tailhook, Day 2.
1: Day 2, Podcast Episode 3. We are cranking it out, man, making it happen. And our guest today is uh, co-author with yesterday's top gun author he'd scarborough we've got uh, proton mclaughlin the president of the tailhook association the just retired commodore of the east coast uh, f-18 community uh so proton Thanks for, for being on the podcast. Thank
2: you for having me. It's yeah, happy thanks, to be here.
1: And thanks for writing or co-writing the uh, the article in the, the September issue of the uh, Proceedings, uh, Junior Officers, Top Guns Foundation. So you served as a Top Gun instructor, as a JO, and then you served as the uh, CEO of the, of the school I later did. on in your career. So tell us a little bit about your time as a JO at Top Gun and, and your thinking about the, the criticality of the JO in the, in the community.
2: Well, so, you know, at, at its core, Top Gun is a J.O.-run organization. Uh, and it's interesting as a military officer, especially having walked into that, used to a normal hierarchical military organization, uh, thinking that the Skipper is running the show and then the XO is, is the screen and, and the department heads are going to be sort of cracking the whip. you walk into Top Gun as a J.O., and the most important guy is the training officer, who's an O3. The second most important guy is the standardization officer, who's an O3. Third most important is the readiness, and then we may get to the skipper, third, fourth, fifth. Uh, and so the transition as a lieutenant, understanding that that really the power all resided within the JOPA was uh, was fascinating and phenomenal, especially as you got more senior on the staff and realized that, that your, your voice really mattered and carried. Uh, coming back, com- typically they'd like to have a CO who had been a, a JO bro because he understands, understands the organization. And really the job of the commanding officer of Top Gun is to sort of run interference for the JOs so they can do their job uh, effectively without the normal distractions uh, that Big Navy may, may put on them. And so he becomes a bit of a screen between higher headquarters uh, and the other external taskers and let the JOs run. And so uh, bringing that guy, a guy back that had, had that, been in that role as a lieutenant is important and is, c- continues to be one of the more effective reasons the Top Gun throws.
0: So how did the school evolve from the time you were one of the bros until you were uh, the, the CEO?
2: You know, it was fascinating. When I went back, um, I had about a month under my belt and people started asking me, what's, what's the difference from when you were here from 98 to 01 and now that you're back as the skipper? And honestly, the truth was the faces and that was it. The, the, uh, the talent, the passion, the personalities were all almost exactly the same. Um, I had to change the call signs because I would look at somebody and say, "Hey, Cato." Up, oh, Cato's not on the staff the me anymore. Hey, Buck. Buck, come over here. But Buck and Cato were the same guy, just separated by an- about a dozen years of life, and uh, and they look slightly different. But it was it was remarkable how completely alike the organization was in terms of just that 100% professional motivation and dedication.
1: You served. As the CEO of of Top Gun from 2012 to 2013, that was after you commanded a fleet Hornet squadron? Correct. Okay, and then after serving as the CEO of the school, where did you go next?
2: So the way it works uh, in Fallon is that you will command Top Gun and you will go over and take command of Strike. And Strike is responsible for air wing training. So when all the air wings come through in their later part of their workup phase... They will do a month in Fallon where we do lots of different training, lots of different scenarios, starting kind of basic integration with with a couple squadrons in the air wing and then all the way through an advanced tactical phase where it's a high-end threat, lots of different uh, scenarios that, that built in kind of a rolling campaign. And so you leave uh, from being the Top Gun CEO, you go and run strike, and you have a, a similarly motivated cadre of instructors that now aren't necessarily just... VFA, Strike Fighter guys, that's through everybody. You got uh, Airborne Electronic Attack SMEs, you've got E2 SMEs, you've got uh, uh, Rotary Wing SMEs, because that's how the Air Wing fights. And so you run that uh, organization. I did that for a year. Uh, and then from there, I went off to be the Navy Naval Aviation Programs Lead for uh, Legislative Affairs in D.C. Ah. Spent uh, about 18 months to two years on Capitol Hill, which was.
0: Yeah, what was that all about? Uh, <laughs> It, it was, now you can you can talk yeah that's
2: right say whatever I want well yeah. you know this
0: guy was a total tool <laughs> no, uh,
2: it was it was fascinating in many ways and equally frustrating in others yeah, um, were you
1: there during sequestration or I was. hit secret sequ- okay I was
2: at the tail end of sequestration uh, right up until the 2016 election It's when I left uh, and it was it was really interesting to have a seat at the uh, at the table when some big decisions were being made and watching the uh, function or some would say dysfunction of how the government works um, up close and personal. The people were fantastic. Uh, The people I got to work with in terms of both the Navy and legislative affairs, the other services, legislative affairs. And then, you know, quite frankly, members of Congress, regardless of side of aisle, they're all really, really good people. And you learn that pretty quickly. You know, what you see on TV is usually a soundbite and it's usually done to drive perspective. And then the way our media works anymore, wedges. You know, it's entrenchment politics in D.C. That's what we do, and you can't cross the line. But if you go one-on-one with any member, uh, House, Senate, uh, Republican, Democrat, they're really, really good people who believe in what they're doing, and they're there because they think they can make a difference. You put two of them in a room, well, then you're going to get a slightly different discussion. But it was was really, really, uh, that part was really interesting. Um, Watching things not change was frustrating.
0: So you mentioned that the, the J.O., only of the faces changed, but their, their, their role was similar to when you were one of the bros. How about the role of Top Gun between the time you were a J.O. and were the C.O.? Because we've talked, to, you know, in recent weeks, we've been doing a lot of Top Gun related shows. Um, and you know we're talking about the move from Miramar and the integration into uh, what we call Nautic now instead of NSOC. I, I was you know showing my age by keep calling it NSOC. Um, so w- what's your what's your view of, of how that has evolved? the, the uh, you know we're sort of taking it from thousand feet up to thirty thousand feet.
2: Uh, so the Navy rightfully and it took a while. So NSOC was the first sort of center of excellence, um, and it was a center of excellence for aviation uh, and. It took some time, but between the time when I left and the time when I came back, I think there was a much. Even though the Navy has not been run by an aviator in a really long time, there was a broad acknowledgement that aviation did things correctly. Uh, and while there's always going to be warts inside of each warfare community, the fact that aviation, specifically strike fighter aviation uh, and carrier aviation, was very standardized and plug and play. That the combatant commander and a carrier came into town, they knew what they were getting. And it was exactly as good as the previous one and it's going to be exactly the same as the one that, that followed on. Uh, Navy leadership, I think, took a look at uh, the Center of Excellence model uh, and specifically NSOC and started to try to apply it out. And when I was, uh, went back the second time it was when the, uh, the Warfighting Development Center concept was birthed uh, through Admiral Gortney and uh, everybody else stood it up. Uh, and when I was the strike CEO, we would have a steady stream of flags coming in who had been charged with standing up their own particular warfighting development centers. And they were trying to figure out, hey, what's the secret sauce? Uh, and the secret sauce in anything for that endeavor is the people. And so with now 50 years of cultural excellence and standardization and never taking anything less than perfection, uh, that enabled um, the... the uh, Us to uh, to realize that go away chaser yeah standardization process protons getting hassled yeah I'm being hassled ain't right
0: executive director
2: ain't right he's just jealous Um, so uh, the it was actually you know another sort of a fascinating um, vision a seat at the table watching other communities to include the Intel guys coming in like hey how do I stand up an Intel Center of Excellence what do I do with that and the three stars sitting down who later became national intelligence director uh he was like hey what do you guys do i was told to come here and figure this out and I'm like oh my god where do you start you know i mean it's just something that we take for granted the culture that we take for granted because it's what we grew up in uh and trying to create that culture certainly not going to happen overnight but that that's the overarching effect of top gun
0: how's morale you know because we hear some anecdotal stuff about you know how it how people are concerned and uh, the, the, there's an exodus in progress and this sort of thing. Um, so how's morale? Let's just start with that. If, if I'm a J O I and mean, we're seeing a lot of JOs here and I, I hope to get a sense of that, you know, by the time we get into the bug roach mixer, but what, what's your sense of how that is?
2: Uh, Are we talking specifically how's morale at Top Gun or are we talking fleet-wide J.O. morale? Fleet-wide.
1: So you were the the East Coast Commodore, so you oversaw all the F-18 squadrons at NAS Oceana, so half the the F-18 fleet in the Navy, right? Correct, correct. So how how are things?
2: I I think the best way to answer that is it depends, uh, and it depends on where you are vis-a-vis a a turnaround cycle. Uh, If you are—the sweet spot is— Like anything in life, predictability is the key to success. If you know what your schedule is, I don't care. Yay, we're going to go out for eight months. But I know a year from now that I'm going to be gone for eight months. You can prepare the family. You can get everything ready. And it sucks to leave for eight months, but at least you know it. Um, If you have no idea what's going to happen, it makes it really hard on the individual, on on the military member. It makes it even harder on the families. And so, what you find is the, the JOS in squadrons and air wings that have some very some predictability, the morale is good. Um, they're deploying, they're flying, they're signing up. And they're, they've signed up and they're doing what they signed up for. The JOS and squadrons that don't have that predictability and/or are in a long fallow phase of maintenance, where there's few jets, not much flying to go around, those are the guys who are voting with their feet. Uh, and they're just for, for good reason. Like, hey, I didn't, I love this. I love flying. I love being a fighter pilot. This is not what I signed up to do. I'm not flying very much. I'm frustrated with all the external things that I can't control. And they're making the decisions to leave. And I, and I believe, you know, that's a very, very personal discussion uh, with those guys. And I tell everybody, you know, every fit rep debrief, um, hey, you, you owe nothing to nobody but your family the end of the day the decision to stay or go needs to be made with your spouse and your children and your family or whomever is your value trusted agent and don't let anybody in the Navy say you have to stay in because you've signed up and you've done more than 99.9% of the country uh, and so the JOs uh, of today are taking that for what it's worth and some some are staying and some are going um, I think as the readiness posture is increasing uh, as we get more flyable aircraft guys are doing and gals are doing what they want they signed up to do. And so I think that we're going to see an increasing uh, corresponding uptick in, in morale and retention. Uh, but it's been a tough few years. I mean, really starting with the sequestration dive in 2013, we have had definitely had some uneven uh, morale and retention type of issues.
0: Just to remind the audience that sequestration really did take a meat cleaver to flight hour funding and readiness accounts. And it was predicted this would be the way it would go down, and in fact, that is what what happened. Um, so, are we are we out of that that uh, stall period?
2: Well, back to the predictability piece. You know, the way we fund the military, vis-a-vis the budget cycle, is problematic. And when we have to go through continuing resolution after continuing resolution, and spending that time on the hill was again a, a lesson watching how that does not work. Um, that has real effects on aviation accounts. Um, the last couple of two-year budget cycles that we're passing budgets and allowing predictability uh, has enabled the system to catch back up. So when we, through whatever reason, end up in sequestration, uh, and we start the supply chain and supply wells run dry, what becomes a primary supplying mode? Cannibalization. So, hey, I go to the shelf. I want to pull this part off. Up. Oh, I don't have that part. Well, that jet's down for something else, but it's got that part I need. I'm just going to take it out of that. And that has deleterious effects and has been five, six, seven years of that type of supply chain model. It took uh, the efforts of really, I mean, legions of people to sort of arrest that slide and come back the other direction. And that was from everybody, starting with uh, uh, Admiral Moran who and, and Secretary Mattis, who started directing We Got to Get Back to 80% MC. Uh, directing that and the focus back in tactical aviation with the supply partners, the industry partners, uh, trying to find multi-source types of supply chains. Uh, Because a lot of the small, you know, we think of military acquisition as Boeing and Lockheed and General Atomics and whomever. They are just sort of the big name on the marquee. Beneath them, providing all the piece parts, there are thousands upon thousands of smaller supply vendors. And when the Navy stopped through, through sequestration and continuing resolutions, un, being unable to give those suppliers money, well, then they're, they're in business like everybody else to make a profit and to put food on their table. They're just going to walk away and do something else. And so when the money comes back in and we start trying to reach in to build those parts, well, well those guys don't make those parts anymore. Uh-oh, now what do we do? Uh, and so through the Nav Air folks, through, I mean, really, I, I can't even tell you how many people are involved in this, but Admiral Miller and team have been uh, in, really engaged for the last 18 to 24 months on arresting that slide and have gotten us back to the highest numbers of Super Hornets we've ever had available on the flight line, which, uh, which again, speaks to how we're going to turn back around with the retention of the morale piece.
1: So a couple of years ago, we were hearing 50% or even less in terms of Super Hornet readiness. Uh, and now it's—is it up to eighty percent now? Are we are we at that point? or getting close We're to getting it? Getting
2: close. Okay, uh, we are. And, and so there's there's two pieces to this. There's mission capable, which is an airplane, and there's fully mission capable, which is an airplane that could go off and fight the nation's wars. Um, step one is getting eighty percent mission capable. Step two is getting to fully mission capable. So we are, depending on the day. So I can I can only speak for Oceana. Um, we had hit eighty percent MC. Last uh, for the first time last February, and we've maintained that steady state, eighty percent plus plus or minus one or two percent uh, since then. Uh, and what we're trying to do is build up that FMC, get all the piece parts, the raw gear, uh, all the all the supporting things that, uh, that make a full up warfighter But yeah, we're doing well. I mean, uh, we in Oceana uh, when I was the deputy, uh, we averaged roughly a hundred mission capable Super Hornets per day, and now we're averaging about one hundred forty three which is great. Which is great. And that is all supply. That's all the levers that have been pulled uh, and uh, reinvigorated in supply chains.
1: And and how are flight hours? Flight
2: hours uh, commensurately have gone back up. Okay. We've got more jets to fly. Uh, The flight hour profile and funding is there. Really, we can really go into this long dissertation, but the flight hour money was altered slightly, but not draconianly. What what had been altered through sequestration was supply parts. So the money for supply that's where we took the risk. Um, and so while there was money to fly, you can't cross streams um, to take fly our money and put it into supply money. And so while we some squadrons had the ability to fly, with well, didn't have any jets to fly. And so uh, that became part of part of the problem. Now the money's been put back in supply. All the vendors have come back out. Uh, and uh, the aircraft availability has gone up correspondingly.
1: We were talking to uh, Renato De Palis, uh, Lieutenant Commander Growler pilot, right, Uh, yesterday. uh, He just came back from deployment on the Stennis, and he said VAQ-133, when they came back, they kept five jets. They have five up jets, and the the Growlers are new, so they're not going through that maintenance trough yet uh, with the new jet. But uh, for a typical Super Hornet squadron at Oceana, coming back from deployment, did they have to give up half their jets a third of their jets like what was what was kind of standard for, for your watch
2: yeah so i mean that 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 speaks to you know the the, the fallow or whether or not you are fully loaded so we it, the ultimate answer is it depends so air wing 1 who's about to go back out they were out last year they were the first dynamic force employment air wing with Truman. Uh, and so we knew that they were going to come back and have a relatively short turnaround and go back out so we Took a few let's
0: remind the audience what dynamic force employment was, because that was a pretty innovative uh, thing.
2: Yeah, so dynamic force employment was uh, a general or Secretary Mattis uh, initiative that basically was trying to say, look, we we are not a garrison force. We are very flexible, uh, and we're going to prove it to you. So while we have all sorts of rules and restrictions on, on talking about operational deployments and tempo, uh, I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that in the day and age of social media and all sorts of other predictors, the enemy kind of knows when carriers are going gonna to sortie and get underway. They've got their own ways of monitoring that. Uh, and so while we, active duty, try to tamp down, we're not going to say anything, um, the enemy typically knew. General Matt, or Secretary Mattis was like, okay, well, we're going to change that up a little bit. And the Truman went out on deployment and was supposed to be gone for seven months, I believe. And they came back two and a half months later. They're home for a little bit, and then they left again. Um, so it's basically a big, okay, we're... We're, we're going to do what we want to do when we want to do it, and we're going to show the world that we can continue to do this because we are the most lethal fighting force in the face of the earth. So uh, that DFE, Dynamic Force Employment piece, well, that was the first of its kind, uh, and it continues to this day. So Truman, when it came back, we knew that she was going to turn around with the airing in relatively short order, so we kept those squadrons basically fully
1: uh, um, equipped, equipped
2: yep. and manned and everything else. Um, when she comes back the next time, that's going to change because what hand hand in glove with all these things that are going on, all these other initiatives, uh, we're trying to extend the the uh, life of the Super Hornet. So the Super Hornet was built as a six thousand hour platform. Uh, there, were, you know, back in the early two thousands when all these decisions were being made, um, you know, we figured that we'd have F thirty five and uh, and other platforms that were going to just fall in behind. Well, that has taken some time to to be realized. And so it was a few years ago that, they re- that Navy leadership recognized we're going to have to do something different and we're going to have to either buy way more um, Super Hornets or we're going to have to s- figure out a way to extend the life of the ones that we have. And so through Boeing uh, and some other industry partners, um, they've determined that they took the, a couple of jets that were approaching the 6,000-hour mark, broke them down to parade rest, figured out where the, f- the fatigue life critical critical parts were, uh, and then forgot a way to extend them out to nine thousand hours. So that that um, focus is called Service Life Modification, SLM for short. SLM begins in earnest in the next year or so. And what that'll do is to remove X number of Super Hornets off the flight lines in Ocean and Lemoore to get an extra three thousand-ish hours out of those airplanes. So.
0: Is it, we do that by replacing spars or what 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 correct for the non-engineer what, what exactly are we going to do to those airplanes?
2: So they are going to take them There's two two sites one in San Antonio one in st. Louis They're going to take them down there the things that they learned off the first two airplanes They know that they're going to have to replace they're going to try to kit these things up So the turnaround time is in the 12 to 18 month instead of years long type of type of scenario um, But there's going to be discovery on every single one of those jets because every jets different so, uh, so what,
0: what are we seeing? Are we seeing like G related stuff? Are we seeing D lambs? Um, what, what, what is yes. the, in, in general? Oh yes. It, I mean, yeah. it,
2: it truly is. Yes. Okay. Um, you know, that the, the jet, the super Hornet having spent a lifetime flying the super Hornet, and the legacy Hornet is an incredibly impressive piece of machinery. Uh, and you know, we put limits on things for aircrew safety. So 6,000 hours a line in the sand that was drawn a long time ago, uh, I think they've discovered that, well, that's maybe conservative, which is good for air crew safety. Uh, And so the things that they've discovered, there were some things that they thought they were going to find. And there's a couple other head scratchers. Uh, And then there was on the other side of that, like, well, we thought it was going to be way worse than this. Uh, And so they are preparing kits for all of these airplanes so that they come in, we turn them back out uh, and send them out. And it's things like spars. It's things like, um, you know, main large structural pieces, and then there's a lot of corrosion things. There's a lot of panels that had never been opened because they're never intended to, and then they open them up and they find some things that they've gone inside, you know. an F-18 operates, Navy F-18 operates at, at sea. So a lot of lot of corrosive material there.
1: How does 6,000 hours compare to the uh, Legacy Hornet or the Prowler or uh, other aircraft? Same
2: same line in the sand, I, and okay. I can't speak to all the TMS, but I think 6,000 hours is about the line for everybody we did a bunch of life extension uh, pr- uh, processes on the legacy hornet because the navy again back to um, we did we we had higher uh, utilization of the super hornet the f-35s are not coming in as quickly as we thought they were going to come in so the navy turned around really quickly and went oh we're going to be flying legacy a lot longer than we thought so the navy spent a lot of money on life extension for the legacy hornet and then subsequently decided to get out of the legacy Hornet business. And so, But the Marine Corps is going to continue to fly the Cs and the Ds into the 2030s. So um, they uh, those jets have been extended out. Uh, into
1: the 2030s? Yeah. Wow. And so are they taking uh, legacy Hornets from the Navy and, and turning them over to the Marine Corps?
2: Yes. So VFA-106, okay. uh, which is the fleet replacement squadron in, in Oceana, um, we had uh, both a legacy side of the, uh, of the FRS as well as a super Hornet side. Uh, at one point when I showed up, uh, we were somewhere 35, 40 legacy F 18s. Uh, of those legacy F 18s, uh, the last one will fly at the end of this month and fly out. Uh, and then the Navy operationally will be out of the legacy F 18 business. Where those jets went was a mix of the United States Marine Corps uh, off to test, some to Nautic uh, out here to fly. Uh, and then the adversary role, and then the reserve adversary squadrons the fly F-18. So VFA-204 out of New Orleans and VFC-12, which is in uh, uh, Oceana.
0: So when we say 3,000 hours, what does that translate in general terms? I know it, it's a function of how much op-tempo we're, we're doing, but is it roughly a 1,000? Each airframe would fly about 1,000 hours a year. Is that a, is that a good guess? Or what no,
2: 6,000 hours ideally is 20 years. Wow. So okay. 3,000 is roughly an extra years. 10 years okay. because you don't, right, you have, if, if we're in a squadron, we have 10 jets in our, in our squadron, um, at any one time, one jet is going to be in a special inspection for nine. You're probably going to have one or two down for various a- ankle biting, uh, gripe issues. So you typically fly s- on deployment, um, of your 10, you'll typically fly six to seven per day, depending on, on what the line is. And that stable rotates. So you won't fly the same jet every day. The squadron will fly it until it hits a a certain phase time, which is either hour or calendar. They'll put it into special inspections. They'll work on the jet, and then it'll come back.
0: Okay. Okay. Well, that's worth the investment. Absolutely. I I guess we'd say that by that time, the JSF program maybe has figured itself out. Where
2: Well, the good news, through the Airbus, through N-98, uh, and through Congress's... uh, Good graces. Uh, we have continued. The Super Hornet line has stayed open. Uh, we have we are continuing to acquire more rhinos. Block three rhinos, which are going to be super cool. I mean, I tell everybody, I, 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 retiring is hard for a number of reasons. Not the least of which the fact that I really want to fly a Block three Rhino with conformal fuel tanks and the advanced data, this the cockpit display, touchscreen stuff. That'll be a phenomenal platform. So the Navy's got uh, a number of those coming down the pike here in the 2021 time frame. Uh, and then we'll just kind of see how this goes moving forward. Okay, yeah,
1: I wanted to go back for a second to the dynamic force employment and your, your point at the start about retention and about talking to JOs and, and those that you know sort of have a predictable life uh, you know, cycle, right? And so right. your workups and then deployment and come back. And how did DFE impact JO retention or how did the, the JOs on the Truman and that strike group, how did they feel about what they were in for? Yeah, funny. Or it too early about, to tell.
2: I think it's a little premature. I, I, I do think that there were um, some interesting anecdotes, more family-based than anything else. The first time I even knew the Truman was coming back, I was at a change of command party, and I heard a couple spouses complaining about it. I was like, I kind of looked at over. I was like. Whoa. <laughs> You don't know, and I mean, I'm the commander, right? I, you think I would know that I have an entire airwing's worth of jets that are going to come back to the flight line? And one of the wives is like, "God, we got to go through this whole, the whole departure thing all over again." They're gone. I want them to stay gone. Yeah, uh, which was really kind of funny. Uh, but you know, it's a it remains to be seen. I think that speaks to if you're in DFE and you're in a deploying air wing, it's certainly challenging because of the comings and goings. But the flip side of that is you're flying. You are funded to fly. You have jets to fly. You are out doing the nation's bidding, wherever that is. And so you have that sense of, okay, I miss my family. I miss my friends. I'm going to miss an entire baseball season. Uh, But at the end of the day, I'm doing what I signed up to do. uh, And that ultimately fills the the member with, with a sense of pride.
0: All right, Proton. Well, you're the busiest man here at Tailhook. We appreciate the time you've given us here. Let me be, say on behalf of the Naval Institute membership and the Proceedings podcast audience, thank you for your service. Um, good luck with your transition; it has its own special challenges, as Bill and I know. And uh, thanks for your leadership of the Tailhook Association. I say that as a member of Tailhook. And uh, again, thanks for being on the Proceedings podcast.
2: It's been an honor, and I uh, really appreciate us and I being here. It's the first uh, first time. It's and, been a while, and, yeah. and uh, at least since uh, did nine years on the board before I was a president. So. Um, we're, we're thrilled that you guys are here, and I'm glad that we're uh, all part of that relationship together.
1: Well, just another reminder of how uh, victory begins at the Naval Institute. Proton McLaughlin, thanks for joining us today, and good luck with the rest of the show.
2: Thanks, sir.
0: The Proceedings Podcast is brought to you by Northrop Grumman. Northrop Grumman applies electromagnetic maneuver warfare to seamlessly target and combat enemy threats across any domain. By leveraging traditional spectrum-based and next-generation innovations, they're giving your forces a decisive advantage. That's why they're a leader in transformative airborne EW. To learn more, visit NorthropGrumman.com/EW.